Hello and welcome to the show and an episode where we ask, what's all this Web3 stuff about? And why do all the VCs that invest in it explain it so poorly? Speaking of investments, this episode is sponsored by Product People. Now, if you're a company founder or product leader who needs to get a product management team up and running quickly or cover parental leave, check out Product People. They've got a thriving community and 40 in-house product managers, product ops pros and product leaders. They onboard fast, align teams and deliver outcomes. You can check out onenightinproduct.com slash product people to book a free intro chat and quote code OKIP to get a 5% discount. That's onenightinproduct.com slash product people. You can check the show notes for more details. Now, if you listen to my first ever podcast episode, you'll know I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to all this crypto stuff, but maybe I'm just an old hack. So if you want to see if my guests can persuade me that any of this stuff is worth looking at and whether you should be involved in Web3 products, keep listening to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Rachel Sachs. Rachel's a former IVF lab assistant and self-described shitposter who once made it onto the front page of the New York Post at age 20, where she told the world to have fun staying poor before that phrase got popular. These days, she's a fierce advocate for Web3 and crypto and wants to help take it mainstream, so get ready, mum. Rachel says that Web3 is a lifestyle and mindset more than a way to make money, which I must say is lucky given some of the news stories I've been seeing these days, but hopefully she's going to bring some positivity and good vibes to the world of crypto in this interview. Hi, Rachel. How are you tonight? Hi, good. I always forget that it's nighttime over by you. <laughs> well, it's actually not nighttime, but I always say night anyway, so no one can pin me down. Ah, ah, ah. But let's start at the beginning, or nearer to the beginning. Sure. You ended up on the front page of the New York Post, which isn't something that happens to everyone, and you ended up on there with the headline, Mean Little Rich Girl. So I have to ask, how did you get on the front page of the New York Post, and what were you talking about? Yeah, so years ago, I was... So we're almost at, oh my gosh, actually, it might be like actually the anniversary of it. Almost like, oh, there you almost, go. Almost 10, it's nine years. It'd be nine years ago this time of year as well. It was like October. I forget which one, but so I wrote an article online, Thought Catalog. I've always been somebody who just writes for myself. And so I was just like, I kind of got like fired up and just wrote this thing and this long, long, like kind of rant and just submitted it. I waited several weeks and I was just like, I figured, oh, whatever. They're not going to take it. I was like standing in Starbucks and all of a sudden I get, I look at my Twitter and I see all of these tags. Like, and I didn't really use Twitter that much. I was on it because like that was 2013. Everyone was, you know, my friends were like <laughs> definitely more popular on it than I was. And all of a sudden it was like all these like messages and I was like, what? And then I saw like the headline. I did not write that headline. It was like that. I, I don't want to be, what is it? Um, what it was it even? It's like, I'm not going to pretend to be poor to be accepted by you, I think, is what the title was of the article. Yeah, the editor really went in. He's great, though. (laughs) Like, really went in on that story. And it started, like, me ranting about, like, coming from a sample sale, someone giving me the stink eye and, like, going grocery shopping, something really just... And then to actually, I went, so I went to art school, and there's a lot of people that I was around that would pretend... Who came from money, who'd pretend to be poor, who'd pretend that they were struggling to get sympathy from other people and to like fit in and feel like they're cool. And I always thought that was just so stupid and like very hypocritical. It's like, we know how much this university costs. Yeah. You are, we know you're not on a scholarship. So why are you pretending that you come from this hard scrabble background to give your art more like cachet or whatever it is? Cause that seems to be a really common thing in art for people just like, 
I came from this, they'll tell their story, but it's never, it's never real. I mean, that's founder stories are the same. They're always scrubbed. They're always polished. Always like really. So I got that. I got a ton of horrible things said about me. I got a bunch of my email inbox. Hilarious. I use my university email, which is like extra funny. That's kind of my burner almost. So I was getting reader mail. I was getting reader mail because I have a whole function for that. And there's a lot of good. There's a lot of bad. And then um, Gawker was really fat. fat like I remember Gawker was really fascinated with me. And so they had a whole series almost about me. And it was just a bunch of people were coming to my inbox. And it was just super random. It was like this guy who had the show on this um, show on E. It was called like Rich Kids LA. They wanted to do a spinoff of me. And I was like, you got the wrong person. I'm not that level of rich. <laughs> and I just knew like, I have depression. I have like, since I was 11 years, like 11 ish, probably about who knows even earlier. Like, yeah, I knew that'd be a stupid idea to have cameras in my face like that. That would just be so dumb. And also I was I'm boring, like in terms of what they want. Like, I hate going out clubbing. I hate going out with promoters. It's just such a thing. And everyone does that when you're in college in New York and just I hated it. I wasn't going to go shopping like insanely at Barney's or anything. RIP Barney's. And just <laughs> no, like on light, on like, yeah, like my life is definitely at, like someone who comes from money, but it wasn't like crazy. So I was, so I was just like, no. And then Dr. Phil really wanted me on the show. He kept emailing <laughs> me. And my parents were like, are you serious? Like, no. I was like, I wasn't planning on going anyway because it's tacky. But and he's like, they always just blame the parents. And it was hard on my family. Like they were very vicious toward my family, actually. Yeah. They were going in on my dad. Someone, once I even found years later, I was just like Googling, wrote like a bad review of my father and like used me as a thing in it. It's like, well, his daughter is like a piece of shit. Like you wonder who it is. And I was just like, I felt that made me feel like shit. That made me feel terrible. Cause like I don't care if it's me and people are criticizing me. If it's my family, then it's just ugh. but I wrote more. I got a contract with Thought Catalog. I started writing a lot more. I changed my major over to writing. I hadn't really decided what I wanted to do. And I was like, well, if I can get attention for this, I better be good at it. And I had kind of had that choice of like, you can fade into obscurity or you can like really go with it. And I was just like, I just want to be normal, I guess. Yeah. And I just really just did not take all the interviews. I didn't take all the shows. I didn't take all the stuff I was offered. Like Grazia Magazine, I, you know it. Like, um, Offers did an interview with me and they were like, they didn't run it because I didn't have a pony. Huh. I, I didn't, my classmates did. I just didn't. I don't, I didn't ride horses. Like they wanted me to like paint me some like Veruca Salt-esque character, <laughs> which was wild. And um, I guess really, so they, so here's the day and like how the cover really happens. It's like, I feel like the thing you want to know. So they, I get home from class. I had a friend in town staying with me at my apartment and we get back to my apartment and all of a sudden there's all these photographers sitting outside camped out like in like a crappy little like car like all of them and they're there at the door and they start taking photos of me and that's when I ended up on the cover and I was young and I was just like I don't want someone to lose their job I'll go with it I'll just chat with them I'll take pictures I'll do what they want because like I don't want somebody to lose their job like that's really naive by the way but I was (laughs) I was a kid I I was 20 I didn't know and so I just let them talk to me. I let them like take certain photos of me, like flipping off the camera on Bleecker Street. Like I was just like, this is, you know, I let me enjoy this a little bit because it's weird and kind of insane. And the next day I had like f- like actual legit paparazzi following me and my friends around. We had to like run away from them. And I was just like, 
Go follow someone else important. Sarah Jessica Parker lives two <laughs> blocks down. Victoria Becker lives that way. Like, go find someone actually important. Like, I am a no one. I am a nobody. Like, you just get away. Like, no. And that was horrible. And, like, as a kid, I, I read different, like, Us Weekly and Star and all that kind of thing. Like, I love British tabloid magazines, too. It's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> Always have. Like, hello. I'll send like, you some, don't worry. Oh, they're so bad, but I love them. They're so mean. They're so mean. Like, more than U.S. <laughs> tabloids, honestly. But I read, read those my whole life. And if I honestly, like, I was just thought it'd be interesting, but like, it was awful being followed around. It's horrible. Like, this is why, like, I see when I see famous people, I just don't, I just act like I don't. Yeah. I just, just don't, I'm not asking questions. I don't care. Like, they're people. And I think that taught me the most of like, famous people are people. Yeah. And it sucks sometimes. Like, that, it's like I wasn't really getting money from it either. So it's different. Well, that's quite the story. It feels like you were maybe a little bit misrepresented and manipulated by the media, which is obviously something which is, you know, lots of people will say that they've they've had that happen to them as well, like it sort of being quoted out of context. But did it make you feel and maybe in some ways help to inform the way that you approach some of the stuff that you do now? Like, for example, you're out there advocating for crypto, for example, you're out there writing posts and articles to try and promote that. Like, that's a controversial space in in some ways and obviously has its own strong opinions like did that whole experience kind of give you a different lens on how you might try and write stuff or present yourself when you're trying to get out there and to some extent win hearts and minds of people that may be a little bit skeptical a bit yeah i mean i stayed away from twitter actually until like december of like the past year i feel so dumb for doing that honestly because i was <laughs> I just like, that's where all the stuff was. I could have been minting stuff that was way better earlier just from being on Twitter. But, you know, people were really terrible. And I was kind of just like, let me just ignore it. And let me just fade into obscurity for a while. But no, I mean, it made me take my writing more seriously. Like, again, I spent my 10,000 hours of writing and doing all of that in school and then in graduate school. And then I ended up working for the publisher of the Wall Street Journal and like doing a ton of writing over there for like just internal stuff ghostwriting, external communications, and just really digging myself in and really, really working at it. Because it's like, if I'm getting attention for this, it better be good. That's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. And with crypto too, it's like, it better be, I try to really be as informative as I possibly can. But I honestly, it ha- it, I got the thickest skin to like just the public from that entire experience because people were just threatening my family, calling me like slurs. I had yeah. never heard like a Jewish slur used against me my entire life until Twitter, like someone like, and I was like, wait, people still use that word. <laughs> and I didn't know. Cause I grew up in such a bubble, like yeah. for these kind of things, like this intellectual bubble, like liberal bubble, like people, I just don't realize what people think. And it's like stuff like that is actually very helpful for me in crypto as well, because it tends to be a really big bubble into itself. Yeah. And so there's a lot of times where I think, I think I feel like more than a lot of people in the space about the fact that there's so, the vast majority does not understand this. They don't buy into it. They don't get it. And that's something that you can't, you can't be so wrapped up in like just the bubble. You have to kind of enter the outside world and understand kind of like a lot of people don't know what you're talking about. Uh, absolutely. And I think that that puts you ahead of many of the people that are commenting on it. So hopefully that'll help with the rest of this interview as well with old hacks like me but let's talk about crypto then so you said that you got into crypto in 2013 to buy weed 
Yes. But there are loads of ways to make money and loads of ways to buy weed. So what was your intro to crypto in the first place? And why was it attractive to you? Or was it literally just the weed? <laughs> so I had a friend who was really into buying like to Kratom, like kind of was going coming off of some like other addictions. And that was the one that showed up. And then it got like outlawed in New York. And so he was he found Silk Road. And we were close and hanging out a lot. And he told me about it. And I was just like, I'm somebody who just loves new, 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 anything. Like, I'm my open-mindedness, if you take like that big five personality test of like, I hit 99th percentile for openness. Like, it's insane. Like, that's way too high almost <laughs> of open-mindedness to things like open to experience, like open to experience, intellectual curiosity, because it's a whole interesting different thing. And yeah, I felt really dark and very shady at the beginning, just because there was just like, you had to go download a whole other browser, you had to kind of do like, there's not really a lot of resources. It looked like eBay, but like kind of like a, like a dark mode version of eBay. Yeah. And I would say like, for me, I, someone who smokes, I've smoked and I've had for a long time. And just like, I hate the process of going to your like random friend of a friend's house, their, their dealer and sitting around <laughs> and waiting. And all this other, and the phone coordination, all this other crap. And I was just like, I, I've always hated that. And so I was like, oh, well, I could just buy it like in a, like a, online. Okay. But then I thought into logistics, how is it going to get to my house? Am I going to get caught? How do I fill up this wallet? How do I bake this wallet? And it was just so murky and unclear at the time. And I was able to set one up. And But I was in college. I like, didn't have money. I didn't really have, like, I was just so worried about what my parents were going to think and like be like, what were you spending this money <laughs> toward? And scared of myself getting hacked. And so I kind of just lost, I kind of just for a bit lost interest, which is crazy to say. And then when I went to work for the journal, like you, there's a lot of rules about what you couldn't like not investing in things because you would have insider information and access to that. Yeah. So I was just like, I better stay on the safe side. And then kind of in 2020, I got really back into it. And I was able to keep myself afloat for a while by just like flipping altcoins, like for 2020 and 2021, because I kind of was in and out of employment and just that was really helpful to have that. But I um, panicked, bought and sold a Bitcoin within one day when it was $5,000. Like <laughs> I didn't have money. That's that's always the problem, I think. It's, well, they say it's what helps the rich get richer. It totally does. I do agree with that. There are the lucky cases of people who have $200, $300. And they're there and they have the right timing, for sure. And I mean, I'm, sometimes it, I'm successful, sometimes I'm not in terms of it. Like right now, bear market, it's been very difficult. Like it's... Yeah. I feel like look at my portfolio and I'm long holding and just trying to be very conservative with everything and just, oof, it's down bad. <laughs> Feeling poor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're all having fun staying poor at the moment. Everybody. <laughs> but if we fast forward then to today, you are now working to demystify Web3 and crypto and help make it mainstream. Yeah. Which obviously speaks a lot to what you were maybe experiencing back when you got into it, like this complete lack of clarity and obviously back then even less clarity and even less information about it. And you've started an agency called Narrative. Yes. With a cool three for an E, which is obviously brilliant. You always know you're cool when you've got a number in your name. But what work are you doing with Narrative and who are you doing it for? Well, I can't really say client based. It's a lot of it is a lot of NDAs, a lot of confidential. Yeah, you can be as vague yeah. as you can, but you Yeah, know. projects in the space, I am very um chain agnostic for instance like there's nfts that are on different chains and there can be a lot of infighting and like oh this one's better than this like i'm trying to be really really across the board hello there's enough people in any space there's gonna be beef are you kidding me like that is how i feel about it 
you get into a room, statistically, if there's like a thousand people, at least one of them's gonna be a jackass. Like that's kind of how it works. That's my theory. It's like if you're statistically like just people will not get along. So (laughs) that will happen. Like I feel like there's different camps of people in crypto. Like there's the Bitcoin maxi types who like they only touch Bitcoin. They love Bitcoin. They will die for Bitcoin. And anyone else in the space is irrelevant to them. There's some people that are Bitcoin and yeah. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, I will say yes. Anyone with the laser eyes on Twitter, (laughs) you're probably a Bitcoin only person. Some of them get over to NFTs, but a lot of them are very big NFT skeptics just because, I mean, well, you can't really make them on Bitcoin, the chain, which I think was the funniest thing ever. I think it was, was it? It was Minecraft, Fortnite, which is the one that, God, which said like no NFTs. I think it must have been Fortnite. Uh, you're talking a different language One to me at this them. point. Okay, so it's this game. It's a big like, mobile like, game that kids, a lot of kids play. And they were having like um, yep. crypto integrations, like people trying to do stuff like that within it. And the company comes forward and says like, an NFT, which can be on something like Bitcoin, inaccurate. That's not true. <laughs> that's embarrassing for them. I don't know who was approving that, but that's really embarrassing. And like part of my why for some things, like, like eventually for what I'm, I've, you know, this whole space is so huge and you just do so much, but I really do want to be helping people demystify crypto, especially at corporations as somebody who's worked for a big corporate before and seen how people even think about innovation or how they even think about new things or the process and the way that it's done yeah. and how broken it is. It's so bad. Like I feel as if like when the big companies, hopefully when they go over to more Web3 assets that they find Web3 native people versus hiring out like a big four, like the the Deloitte's, KPMG's, (laughs) McKinsey's of the world. Because you're going to have some 22-year-old researching stuff who doesn't know anything and thinks it's weird and making a deck for their manager to look at half-assedly and then go up to the CEO. And it's not going to be well-informed. But then they will have to execute because the CEO is not going to ask people more questions. I think you've just described consultancies in a nutshell, to be honest. I don't think that's just a crypto thing, but you know. Oh, 100%. I, again, <laughs> I worked at Dow Jones. Yeah. Like, I saw all this stuff all the time. I was a ghostwriter for CEO's inbox. Yeah. I saw all the managing directors. I saw everything from the top of the company of how it all worked. And that's always what it is. You get these multi million dollar contracts with these consulting firms, and they're just kind of don't do anything yeah. with it. That's the problem. It's because it's like, it's not really the fault of it. That's just the structure. And that's the problem is like, it's when people are too set and doing things the same way, which is just a lot of how it is like people, even though if it's not broke, don't fix it. Like, no, there's a lot of times and stuff is broken and you should fix it. <laughs> you should fix it. Like I'm a big, I, I took a class at Harvard Business School for myself, for fun on innovation and disruption, that kind of deal with that. It's like Clayton Christensen, people like worship him. Yep. It was, it was super trippy because he filmed it right before he died. Like the class, because like virtual class, like it was, Trippy knowing that was probably one of the last things yeah. that he ever did, which is woof. Like that in context is kind of insane. But yeah, management, organizational structure, all the kind of thing, just seeing it, living it, understanding it, and being like, okay, well, they, how to innovate on it, really what to do with it. And I think that's something that in this space is really ripe to do and like makes you want to expand what I'm doing into more of a company just because I'm. Yeah thought of this for so many years in like maybe a more web two context of just what's wrong with kind of the way that companies tend to be structured and work. And a lot of my stuff's definitely a little radical, probably will not be able to adopt it, but that's okay. Well, you know, baby steps. But Baby steps. 
Baby steps. But let's get specific for all the boomers and Gen X people listening to this. Maybe some of those 22-year-old consultants as well. You know, the Web2 people, my people. So for the uninitiated, how would you describe Web3 in a nutshell? Damn. All right. The (laughs) the natural integration, kind of natural progression of where the internet is going to something that is more decentralized, whereas in like you're not going to be owned by Google, by Facebook, by Twitter. It's going to be all these different spots and everyone is going to be trying to build new things. And there's a lot more opportunity to do more interesting, innovative, disruptive things without having to deal with larger institutions, without having to deal with a lot of bullshit is kind of what the underlying thing is. And then the community layer of it is people in the space are open-minded by nature just because of being drawn to it with a lot of stigma. Yep. So a lot of times the the company, the people, everybody around you is a very open-minded person who's kind of been a lot of the fringes of society and kind of gets it, which is what's been really great for me. These are not always people who've just won everything. That's the difference in Web 2 and Web 3. A lot of people in Web 2, all the founders and that, are these people who have just gone to Stanford. They've played sports. They've like whatever. They've never had a real upsetting thing happen to them in their life. Yeah. Most people in Web 3 have had a lot of shit happen to them in their lives. And so that translates to kind of a different form of empathy for other people. That's interesting, though, because whilst I agree that there's obviously a big community out there, and I'm sure that that's really helpful to kind of drive that sense of belonging within the space, and there's obviously a very egalitarian, anyone can get in type mentality around this stuff. But at the same time, you do have some of those Stanford bros yeah. in the space as well, right? And you've still got all your A16Zs investing in it and all these VCs investing in it. And it almost feels like, you know, say goodbye to the old boss, welcome to the new boss. And it's yeah, it's just all the same thing because people ultimately, the people that are out there trying to make money off of stuff are going to look at this, see a gold rush and then try and go and make some money out of this instead, right? So do you think that there's an answer to trying to have this more bottom-up innovation and bottom-up community versus all the money being piled in by institutional investors trying to get rich and VCs trying to make a bunch of money? Hmm. I mean, there's different people, I think, kind of like myself, who really want to work with these people to get them to understand how to really bring their products about in an authentic way, even if it's... Who knows where it's coming from in their mind? Even if it is the I need to get rich thing, the fact is there's just certain facets of Web2 business that just don't work and will not be received well. And they think that that's what they need to keep doing. And it's wrong. Like I see job postings and it's still asking for like I investment banking experience and still asking for consulting experience. And I think all of that is really, really irrelevant. Yep. Because it means that like you just... it. All it tells me is you know how to kiss ass and get coffee. That's literally all it tells me. <laughs> and I've done that professionally. And like within like running an executive office. Like, and it's just like, okay, well, I don't get any respect for that. But... Yeah, there are people in this space who are just there to scam people and get money. I'm not going to say it's all rosy and beautiful and smileys and kumbaya shit. It's not. But <laughs> if you find there's, it's large enough that, yeah, you may have to deal with those institutions and those VCs and those people, but you don't need to deal with them all the time. Like you find your communities, you find your people, and that becomes your life. That becomes where you're trading alpha, where you're doing all these other things, where you're talking, you're having moments, you're seeing them in person. It's it's just a special bond and that kind of thing really can't be screwed with if it's someone really over you. 
because it's not like you're necessarily going to be working for these VC-backed companies. Like there is the opportunity for people like myself to go really start something, be like, well, what am I good at within Web3? And this desire from these companies to really get into the space and to have people who understand both sides of it, I think is going to be a very helpful thing to move the space along with mass adoption. Because it just can't be, it needs, when something is really rolled out from a major company, it needs to be done in a very specific way that feels authentic to the product and authentic to the people. And that's what really does, separates the good ones from the bad ones. Like I'd say like Nike purchasing Artifact, that went well. I would say that's one that went very well. Yep. A lot of celebrities getting into NFTs, if it feels inauthentic, which a lot of times it does, it does not go well. You will not be received well. It gets very ugly. Like you need to have, as a famous person, as a company, you need to show a level of being involved with the community, with the people and support it before you really launch what you need to do. You can't just say, I want to launch an NFT and like a random company just going to do that. Like you need to hire the right people. You need to have, make it feel authentic. You need to really be selling what makes sense to these Web3 people but also something that's not so intimidating and scary that regular people would not get it. Like putting a credit card ability to purchase is an interesting way to go. But you should also be having a wallet integration function. You should be able to purchase it with crypto because that'll make you feel like it's going along. It'll make the web free people feel better about it. It can't. It all, I always feel weirded out when I see um, something that doesn't make sense, like an NFT coming out and just in dollars. And I'm like, that's not the point. <laughs> that's not necessarily the point. And that's like the only choice. Like, I think it's an easy way in for people to understand it. If it's like, hey, you want to have your credit card and it's $199 for this. Like, okay, that's people can rationalize that versus like whatever number of Ethereum this is. Like, like what is that? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, keeping on top of the different values is a moving feast at the best of times. But some people will say that Web3 doesn't really solve any problems that you can't solve in other ways. Now, I'm with you in a sense that. That's not a reason not to try it. Like, there's plenty of people out there building new versions of old solutions, even in Web 2, right? Or solving old problems in, in Web 2. So, I've got nothing against people building new novel solutions or what they consider new novel solutions to solve problems that were already solved in a different way. But I'm a product guy. I like to solve problems the best way, kind of irrespective of the technology behind it, and just focus on solving the user problem. Yeah. And there is an argument that some have espoused that. Anything that's useful in Web3 isn't really very new, and anything that is new isn't really that useful. Hmm. Now, obviously, you don't believe that, but what would you say to someone that said that to you? I mean, the, uh, kind of saying that it's not going to change you things. You, they're recreating things that you don't know you need yet, I think, is kind of what that is. That's really what a good founder does, and that's what a good salesperson does, too. You, they're coming up with a solution that you didn't know that you needed. So you're the Steve Jobs of crypto. Is, is that where we're going with this one, then? I am not the Steve Jobs of crypto. <laughs> I'm not even close. I don't know. No way in hell am I Steve Jobs of crypto. Who's the Steve Jobs of crypto? Is it Vitalik? Maybe. But he's not, he's not problematic. That's the thing. Like You look at his damn... He's, he's just there just doing his damn thing, like wearing weird pajama pants and stuff with his little sombrero. <laughs> like he doesn't give a shit. And that's kind of what the icon that this Web3 industry needs. And it has, it's like, you don't need to please other people with something like so superficial, like your appearance or something like your 
yeah. who you know, whatever. It's not as much like about that. It's more about kind of what skills do you have and what do you know, especially on the developer end. I will say on the developer end more so than on the personality end or the marketing end or the other ends of it. But yeah, for like figures that are kind of worshipped, like they have the chops. It's That's what they focus on. That's their life. Yeah, but I have seen a few high-profile crypto people who shall remain nameless. Damn. They may well be some of these Stanford people. You know, let's just imagine they could or they couldn't be. But I've seen them on other podcasts waffling on about, like, they get asked to name a solid Web3 use case, like an actual specific Web3 use case that's better than what came before. And they kind of just wave their hands around, spout a few random words and say decentralization a little bit. Oof. And then they kind of stop. No. So this is your chance to actually be the Steve Jobs of crypto, of Web3. Yeah. And do better than those Stanford bros and give me one concrete use case for Web3 that is better than the Web2 or Web1 alternative. I have two. Cool. So I think one of the better ones I've seen lately is the authentication aspects for luxury clothing because the resale market is just hotter than ever. And there is a lot of money spent on resale marketplaces such as Poshmark, The Real Real, et cetera, on authentication. If it is stored on chain, which cannot be corrupted by other people, you can't fake it. You can't fake the fact that this is like the same chain as Gucci. You can't do that. That just does not <laughs> exist. The amount of block transactions that go through, you can't. So for authenticating something like a Chanel bag, a Gucci purse, like something like that, clothing, like the fact that you know it is this brand and the fact that you all you pay all this money and you know it's legit. Or you're going to go online on eBay and buy something. It's like, oh, I don't want to be spending $600 on what's going to be a fake purse. Like something like that. And you have it and you can see it. You can scan the QR code and you can view it all on Etherscan and see it. say, this is authentic. This is what it is. And it saves so much money in terms of like, there's all these crews of authenticators, cost millions and millions of dollars to resale companies, which are like one of the fastest growing segments of how people buy things in the world, really. And I think just a better solution for everything. Like most of the stuff I buy is used. I really do. That's what I like. I don't like contributing to more waste in that way. So something like that is a good use case. You know what you're buying and you know what you're getting. I've also seen that use case for marijuana products, like, or even for like buying up something like that. Like you don't want it to know, you don't want it corrupted. You want to know that from end to end, this is what you're getting versus it could be sprayed with some weird shit. It could be like watered down. You never know. That's one. Just before you go to number two, though, yeah. I do have to mention the phrase Oracle problem and see if you have any answer to the fact that, that any information that goes onto that chain is only as good as the way that it gets entered for anything that's an off-chain good, right? So yeah. is there an answer to that Oracle problem or is it does that require some level of trust that you can't fix with There's companies. Blockchain? There's companies that do that. And that, yes, it does require some bit of level of trust of how it is input on chain. That is very true. But the level of public accountability that these companies would have and the absolute shitstorm that would go down <laughs> if someone entered it wrong, it's just not worth it for them. So they will. it is worth their time to make sure it is correct and that it's all right. Or they will be fucked royally, just badly. Like it'll just not end well for them. But, and again, I don't want to, labor this point too much if that's the kind of the breaking point of the whole shebang like if we were saying that one particular company or a selection of particular companies are the ones that 
are kind of responsible for making sure this stuff's all accurate and that they're the ones that are going to carry the can if it all goes wrong. Doesn't that then remove a lot of the benefits of the decentralization? Because yes. ultimately, if yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, that's something I'm all like now. But the decentralization aspect is more about being like not having to really deal with the banks more so, like the centralized banking oh, those institutions being tied to the fiat dollar, being tied to stuff like that. That is really more of the decentralization in my mind that I think people are talking about. And that's really kind of more so a way that I would translate to somebody who is more Web2 as a way to think about it. All right, what's number two? And to make it feel a little more cleaner. Number two is tickets. I mean, it's kind of also in the authentication thing, but have, like, think about it. You already have it on your phone. You already have these things on your phone. If you have it as an NFT, you have it. People keep their tickets as collectibles anyways, make little scrapbooks. Like, still not a dead art. And also scalpers and other things like that. It almost is in the authentication thing. It's almost is like a carry up. It's like 1.5 of what I just said in a bit. But being able to buy things that way directly, being able to resale and also like royalties as well. Like the artist gets the royalties if a scalper is selling ticket or someone's reselling the ticket. I think that's a new way to think about that. And I mean, yeah, that's also number three is royalties and just how people really are interacting with the art that they're selling and like musicians and artists. The fact that their individual sales, if they're getting, re- if it's getting resold in an auction in like real life, Web2, like you're not getting anything from that. Like you made your thing, you got really kind of like yeah. cheated out of whatever it was, especially if it goes up in value. When you're staring and you're selling it on a marketplace with royalties, you're getting a piece of the pie. And I think that's something that's very special and important as somebody who has an art background. It's a good way to go because a lot of times your work is used without your permission. IP gets complicated, just dealing, especially different visual art too. Like it gets co-opted all the time. And that's kind of a problem. And a lot of artists deal with that. And being able to get royalties if it's being resold is something that is a game changer for creators. Well, as a former struggling musician myself, I'll have to say that anything anyone can do to at least try to make a little bit more money for musicians is definitely appreciated and keep an eye on it. But one thing I must say is that if I want a consumer grade experience that I could give, for example, to my very wonderful but ultimately not very tech savvy mum, it needs to be super straightforward. Like she's not going to set up her own wallet. She's not yeah. going to manage her own keys. Nope. Do you think there's enough effort at the moment going into making Web3 accessible to mainstream users? So for example, where designers and product managers might have the same cachet within the industry as the developers working on the tech? Or do you think it's still very tech led? No, I think it's absolutely going in that direction. UI, UX is definitely becoming the next thing people are hiring. User experience is incredibly important. It really is a differentiator of who's adopting wallets easier. And certain features like can you use a credit card, like different on-ramps to it is really the differentiator and what is going to make a product stand out and what's really going to make it a market maker. And I think that's... Everyone's thinking about that right now, to be honest. Like the fact of like more public facing brands trying to get into the space. Like I'm so excited to see just what Starbucks is going to do with their NFT like membership. They're making it more feel more like it's a membership experience, which is a lot. It is very Web3 of them to say it like that. Like that is like an extension of your home, extension of your life. Like that's kind of, yes, that is where that's going. So it's trying to make it easier for people. I'm very curious to see what they're going to do because they have. Their app is actually what makes them the most money, if anything, because people preload their cards. They don't use the money, but that money's already gone in. So I think that is like the, I forget where that was from, maybe NPR, something like that. Of like, that is where the vast majority of their revenue comes from. 
So it's going to be intriguing <laughs> to see what they do with this. Well, I'm sure they'll be making some substantial money one way or the other. But one of the good things about traditional finance is the fact that it's all guaranteed in general, at least, and you can get your money back if you send it to the wrong person. And generally speaking, banks don't get emptied due to missing semicolons in a bit of code. Now, we obviously have to call out the financial crash back in the day, which obviously was almost the precursor to some of the crypto in the first place. But one of the dark sides of unregulated crypto cash is that it does seem to be that quite often a lot of people lose their money. And if we go back to my mum, she doesn't want that. There's like a hack a week being shown on some sites like Web3 is going great and just always something in the news about someone getting milked somehow because something went wrong. Now, that's obviously going to be a barrier to mass adoption if people don't feel secure, like your, your average person on the street. But do you think that's going to get better? Or if not, do you think it's a worthwhile price to pay? Oh, it's absolutely getting better. There's so many tools and like people building right now to really get that going. It's a lot of people I've spoken to that have been really very intense with that. That has been something that's like the next biggest concern, of course, is security. That is the big, next biggest. I think that's going to be the biggest next thing that's happening is really that's because I know that is the biggest hurdle to mass adoption, in my opinion, is people feeling like it's your money's not secure. But also think about it. What is your bank doing with your actual money? They lend it out all the time and they will go and invest around things like what even is a savings account? It's just as volatile and just as subject to hacks. Banks can get hacked. Yeah, but you're insured with the bank though, right? You're insured with the bank. There's definitely just crypto insurance that's being created. People are doing that kind of thing. And I think that's going to be very interesting to see what does come out from there. Well, we just have to hope the crypto insurance doesn't get hacked as well. Otherwise, we're just going to be in a horrible circle of hack. So if we buy all that and if we kind of say that we've converted to the world of Web3 and look into it, we say, well, the Web3 juggernaut, you know, it's become a big thing now, obviously, and there's a lot of money sloshing around. There's a lot of projects. There's a lot of initiatives going on. Ethereum has now moved away from proof of work, which is fantastic because at least we're burning a little bit less of the planet to do it. But on the flip side, a lot of the coins have dipped quite a lot. You talked about that earlier. The value has gone down quite a lot. It's been a bit of a crypto crash, crypto winter. NFTs and L, for the most part, all the biggest ones are kind of worth nothing. I'm sure that some still are worth something, but like they're not worth half as much as people were buying them for. That famous one that someone bought of like Jack's first ever tweet is now worth like $12 or something ridiculous like that. So that might make people that are curious about this feel a little bit despondent and maybe a bit reluctant to get into it. So what's one positive Web3 trend that my listeners should be checking out right now? Hmm. Interesting choices. I mean, in terms of just like straight up, like what new thing is coming up or like what are people getting into? So that I'd say ENS, Ethereum name service, where it's like buying, it's like back in the 90s and early 2000s where people would be buying domain names up and making money off of it. <laughs> well, they're still buying domain names. They're still buying it. So it's exactly the same deal. So for the decentralized web, for different apps, kind of if you want to go into the metaverse at all, like you can have like your wallet because things are powered by your wallet. So it's a recognizable name instead of a bunch of like characters, like big strings of that. So it all can be people can send you money to the same place. If you have, if you're conducting business, people can send you money to that spot. And it's, I mean, it's all public, which is interesting to see. You can, but it's also interesting for like anti-money laundering it for a different crime. For seeing all how that goes, like you can see all the money going in and out of people's wallets. It's wild. But ENS, I think, <laughs> and like certain ones, that people businesses are going to want to use. There's, there's a term called squatters. So as all these big businesses are getting into Web three, people will buy up these ENS domains that are these company names and. They've gotten some significant payouts. Like 
it keeps on getting higher and higher because it's just people are realizing the demand for it. I like to, I honestly find it really fun. I like to go on the site and see which ones aren't taken and pay like 10 to $12 a pop and then try and resell it and see what's up. It's, <laughs> it's so much fun. It is really fun to mess around with. Just like somebody who has like a writing, like somebody's a word person, honestly. Like I like to see what phrases, what names, other things I can end up coming up with and then see like, what can I sell it for? And they, I think that's really the next big spot. Like where most of the big sales have happened is in ENS domains right now. Well, it really is the new version of, as you said, the kind of gold rush for domain squatting back in the day. So it kind of feels like the uh, feels like the circle is going back around again, which I don't yes. know if I should be kind of disappointed with or kind of just strap in and start buying it myself. That's just how people are. I think things are cyclical like this, especially in tech, especially in innovation. It is a lot more cyclical than people think. Like if you think of, oh, no more new ideas, what new ideas, like that kind of thing. Um, a lot of new ideas are just building off of old ones. It's true. A lot of it is building off of old ideas and improving it or trying to find a different solution. And that's totally fine. I find that to be that's an accepted part of it. I think that really getting everybody over, it needs to really solve daily problems. It needs to be doing that. It, even if people are like, oh, it's so boring, staying on the ground, I'm doing that. Like, no, like my opinion, like metaverse related anything, like I'm not going to go shopping in the metaverse. I don't want to. I like <laughs> I like shopping in person. I really don't shop online that much either. I'm just somebody who likes extensive secondhand shopping, thrift shopping. Um, I like the the hunt. I like the experience. Yeah. So for me, metaverse is going to be. If I was to use it, it'd be more of like an escapist thing versus like trying to make my current reality go to like virtual entirely. Like, it's enough. Like, I either like to sit home behind my screen. Or like on Twitter, I don't need an avatar doing stuff as much. With no legs. Yeah. I need something that's just going to like transcend something I can experience at home. Like you can go see nature somewhere. You can go live in that. Like you can go to space. Like I'm about that. That's fun. That's cool. Like you can build out these worlds. Like that's fun. Yeah. Like I think people need to have more, keep having fun with it. I think that's something that's starting to get because it's it's so much more monetizable and as bigger companies are coming in there's less fun in it like there's some projects and some things that do try to capture fun but i do think that people need to just keep having more fun with it because it's getting very it's getting very serious in tone a lot of stuff is kind of more dead and just i think a lot of people got freaked out and the real people who build and will do well are still there that's the thing like this is the time when everything is down that's when you build. That's when you create. That's when you decide to really go heads down and figure out what you want to do. That's kind of what this is right now. That's the period of time I think that we're in. You could stock up on some things that are going to be more worthwhile assets over time. Just don't sell too early. And that's the thing. This is inevitable. All of the major companies have a, such a thirst for it. All the banks have such a thirst for it. Everyone is coming. I go to events several days a week. And meet people from all across different parts of the industry. And it's just like they're the corporate side, the institutional side, it's all coming through. And that's the thing. It's like that's what's going to really kickstart all of this. I feel like one day, like, you know, when you got chip cards with your credit card in the mail? Yep. It's going to be like all of a sudden, here's your crypto wallet. This is what you need to use. This is how you're going to download it. Like one day, that's just going to show up. Uh, a dazzling view of the future and we'll see how much of that comes true in the next few months and years. But where can people find you after this if they want to chat about crypto, find out about which bits of Web3 are going great, or maybe get some inspiration for their next crypto project? So I have a 
company, which I launched the site. Hooray, today. With a three on. With a three on. Yes, narrative with a three dot XYZ. And I've been in this since 2013. I offer a lot of just, if you want to just understand it, if you want someone who can do workshops, you want ghostwriting, you want to do like white papers, you want to do research. And if you're somebody who wants to build a project, like a lot of people are really into the visual art aspects of your project, which is totally valid and definitely a thing. But you need someone who can help you sell it through words. Yep. Like marketing's not just enough. Like you need somebody who's going to help you world build. You're going to want somebody who's going to do lore, legend, story. That's what makes an NFT seem more valuable. This is how this tends to work. This is what makes a community more valuable. And that tends to be also what makes said asset more valuable is the storytelling aspect, the amount of people involved, like what their caliber of people involved is. And it, it needs to feel sophisticated. These are companies. People run them like it needs to be run like a company. And I'm somebody who's been in corporate and kind of everywhere and all sorts of kind of business. I've been in VC. I've been like everywhere and seen a lot. And so I kind of just come here and people can pay for my services and I can just tell them <laughs> what they need to know. Like that's really it. And try to be approachable. I think there are no dumb questions. And I think that a lot of other people in crypto can be a bit intimidating to talk to. My DMs are always open. I always follow back. Like I try to make sure that I'm getting... Probably putting out what I've gotten in this. And I think that being in Web3 has really kind of erased a lot of the trauma that I've had for Web2. That's really what it is for me. Like I've had social anxiety most of my life. I can now go onto spaces or this podcast even and just talk and ramble and people want to hear what I have to say. Yeah. And that's something that's been really good for me as a person, just to have a bit of knowledge in something. Because I've always kind of just drifted around like, well, what am I good at? What is it? And like, that's what it is. I've kind of done everything. And so I try to bring that experience to people and like compassion for everyone under- trying to understand this because yeah, it's not easy to understand. There is a pretty damn high hurdle to get into it. But once you get into it, people are happy that you're there. And I think that's an important thing to keep. And really, I work really hard at it and like enforcing that and trying to spread that to people that I know and have in- anyone who has influence in this space, like be happy there are more people here. Like mass adoption at all costs at this point, because that's really where we're at. And I think that being early to something like, yeah, this is how you create generational wealth. This is how you build yourself. This is what I think will give me where I need what I need, where I need to go. Like to be able to be just comfortable and happy and live in my own skin and just live in the world. And I think this is where we are going. And it's important to really be able to understand that and predict it. So yeah, so I hope with the all of the writing, everything that backs it. I've done ghostwriting for years. If you want to seem like if you're a CEO or a corporate and you want to get into this, always happy to sit down and talk and say, just tell you what do you need, what you need to know in order to really bring this to the community in a way that will not be a complete dumpster fire. Because that is my biggest fear. <laughs> That's my biggest fear is these big companies doing exactly what they do, hiring consultants, don't know of this industry and don't under, are not going to take the time to understand it. And being an absolute dumpster fire of a rollout that is like shit on by the community, the floor price is absolute trash, and no one buys it. That's a major problem. And so I feel like that is something I want to make sure doesn't happen. Well, I'll make sure to link your contact details in the show notes. And hopefully you get a few CEOs and corporate (laughs) denizens and multicolored apes heading your direction to find out more. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking some time to explain all this stuff to a 
jaded old dinosaur like me and trying to bring a bit of positivity to Web3. Obviously, we'll stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. This was, so, this was great. This was super fun. Always is. I'm always like, I always enjoy this. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.